We meet today in Ephesians chapter 1, looking at verse 7 to verse 12. Ephesians chapter 1 talks of the church as the body of Christ. And in this section, we are looking at God the Son who paid the price for the church. Back in eternity past, God chose us, predestined us, and made us accepted in the Beloved. Now we move out of eternity into time, where the plans of God the Father are placed into the hands of Christ, who moves into space and time to construct the church. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7 Now, it is a historical fact that Jesus was born into this world over 2,000 years ago. God intruded into humanity, and after being on the earth for 33 years, he died upon a cross, was buried, rose again bodily, and ascended into heaven. Those are the historical facts that the word of God gives us. While he was here, he redeemed us. And that redemption is through his blood. After God the Father had drawn the blueprint, the Son came to this earth to form the church with his nail-pierced hands. The entire context of the Old Testament sets forth the expiation of sins by the blood of an animal sacrifice. Yet this could not take away sins. Only Christ could execute that. In him we have redemption. In him here refers to the beloved who is Christ. We are accepted in the beloved in Christ. Redemption is the primary work of Christ. This is the reason Christ came to the earth. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to save and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20 verse 28, he came to pay a price for your redemption and mine. We were slaves in sin, and he came to deliver us and give us liberty by paying a price for us. Now there are three Greek words in the New Testament which are translated by the English word redemption. The Greek word is agorazo. And this word means to buy at the marketplace. Here is the picture of a housewife out in the morning shopping for the day. She sees some vegetables and a roast and puts down her cash on the barrelhead. She pays the price and now they belong to her, of course. The only thought in this word, agorazo, then is to buy and take out. This is the word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now the Greek word exagorazo means to buy out of the market. And it has the thought of buying something for one's own use. You see, somebody could go into the marketplace and buy that roast and those vegetables and go down to the next town where they are short of those items and put them for sale at a profit. So you see, exagorazo means, however, 
to take goods out of the marketplace and never to sell them again, but rather to keep them for one's own use. This is the word which is used in Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the case of the law, being made a case for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, this means that Christ redeemed us so that we could not be exposed for sale again. He has paid the price. He has taken us off the market. We belong to him. The third Greek word for redemption is apolutrosis, which is the word used here in this verse, verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. It carries this same meaning in Luke 21 verse 28. We read it. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. And redemption here is a marvelous word. It means not only to go into the marketplace and put cash on the counter. It means not only to take it out of the market for your own private use, never to sell it to anyone else. But it also means to set free or to liberate after paying the price. E, that is amazing. The last applies to buying a slave out of slavery in order to set him free. And this is the word for redemption we have in verse 7 of Ephesians 1. He bought us from being slaves in order to free us. Man has been sold under sin and is in the bondage of sin. All one needs is to do is look around and see that this is true. Man is a rotten, corrupt sinner, and he cannot do anything else but sin. He is a slave to sin. Christ came to pay the price of man's freedom. That is what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8 verse 36 This is redemption by his blood. That was the price which he paid. The blood of Christ is more valuable than silver and gold. For one thing, there is not much of it. A limited supply increases the value of a substance, but that really is not the reason for its value. One drop of the blood of the Holy Son of God can save every sinner on the top side of this planet Earth if that sinner will put his trust in the Lord. We have redemption through his blood, and the reason he saves us that way is because without the shedding of blood is no remission. This is an Old Testament principle which is applicable to the entire human race from Adam down to the last man. We have been redeemed now, not with the blood of bulls and goats that can redeem you, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the forgiveness of sins. Now, forgiveness is not the act of an indulgent deity who is moved by sentiment to the exclusion of justice, righteousness, and holiness. Far from it, forgiveness depends on the shedding of blood. It demands and depends on the payment of the penalty for sin. Christ's death 
and the shedding of his blood is the foundation for forgiveness, and without that there would be no forgiveness. A righteous God forgives on the basis that a penalty has been executed. When was it executed? When Jesus shed his blood over 2,000 years ago. Forgiveness depends on the blood of Christ. That's how valuable his blood is. The shedding of the blood of Christ and his death on the cross is the foundation for forgiveness. Without this, there is nothing. God cannot forgive until the penalty has been paid. And the word for sin here is paraptoma, which means an offense or a falling aside. Paul describes the first sin of man as an offense in Romans 5 verse 15. He uses the same word in Romans 4 verse 25, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Sins include the entire list of sins which is chargeable to men. Augustine stated it well clearly when he said, Christ bought the church foul that he might make it fair. He bought it, you see, with his own blood and paid the penalty for sin. This is amazing. How did this happen according to the riches of his grace? <laughs> that is an interesting expression also. It doesn't say out of riches of his grace, but it says according to the riches of his grace. God is rich in grace and he is willing to give according to his riches of grace. He has had to bestow so much grace on me, but he has enough for you, my friend. He has enough left for all of you. You may even be listening to me now, and you may be in North Africa. God has grace for you. It may be hot up there, but God's grace is rich up there too. Some of you may be in East, West, Central, and Southern Africa. Know that God has grace for you. God can save you, and he can keep you, and it is due to his grace. He is able to do so. You see, we are dealing with the work of God the Son on behalf of the church. That work is threefold. Christ redeemed us through his blood. He has revealed the mystery of his will. And he rewards us with an eternal inheritance. Now we are ready for the second work of the Son of God on our behalf, on behalf of the church. Christ revealed the mystery of his will. Here is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 8 to verse 10. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, what is mystery in scripture? It is not a mystery story, by the way, and it is not something you wonder about like, was it the butler who committed the crime? A mystery in scripture means that God is revealing something that up to that time he had not revealed. There are two elements which always enter into a New Testament mystery. Firstly, it cannot be discovered by human agencies, 
for it is always a revelation from God. And secondly, it is revealed at the proper time and not concealed, and enough is revealed to establish the fact without all the details being disclosed. Actually, the Schofield Reference Bible lists seven mysteries in the New Testament. Here are some of them. The greater mysteries are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13. Uh, then the mysteries of Israel's blindness during this age, Romans 11 verse 25. Then the mystery of the translation of the living saints at the end of the age, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the mystery of the New Testament church as one body composed of Jews and Gentiles. The mystery of the church as the bride of Christ. The mystery of the living in Christ. Then the mystery of God even Christ. That is Christ as the incarnate fullness of the Godhead embodied in whom all the wisdom for man subsists. The mystery of the processes by which God-likeness is restored to man. The mystery of iniquity. The mystery of the seven stars. And finally, the mystery of Babylon. This is, according to the Schofield Bible, highlighting many of the mysteries that are there. Yet even with all these, did you know that God hasn't told us everything? There are a lot of other things God hasn't told us. I still have questions too, but I don't know who to ask because nobody down here on earth knows the answer. Someday he will reveal them to me. God will reveal them. So a mystery then is something God hasn't previously revealed, but now reveals to us. Now in these verses is a wonderful mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament. First, let me restate verse 8 and 9 to amplify their meanings uh, somewhat. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known, and that known is in the Irish tense, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, and himself there is Christ. Notice that in all wisdom and prudence properly belongs with verse 9. What is the mystery of his will? First of all, it is something which is revealed according to his wisdom and prudence. It is not some simple little ABC something. No. There is a simple gospel, my friend, but may I say to you that there are depths in the wisdom of God that you and I can't easily probe. Sometimes not at all. We need to use all the mental faculties that we have in order to try to understand something of the great purposes of God, the plan of God. God wants us to know these things because now this mystery has been revealed. What does he say? that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now another new word has been introduced there. Dispensation is another word like mystery. It is often misunderstood and many people today 
think it is a dirty word. It is actually a great word, my friend. Let me say, first of all, that a dispensation is not a period of time, which is usually what people tend to conceive. No, dispensation can actually mean a stewardship, an order, or an administration. Now, an English transliteration of the Greek word would be economy. It is an order or a system that is put into effect. It is the way of doing things. So a dispensation may fit into a certain period of time, but it actually means the way God runs something at a particular time. It is the way God does things. It is evident, therefore, that God had Adam on a different arrangement than he has for you and me. God is running things in a different way from the way he did with Adam. Now God has never had but one method of saving people. Everything rests upon one method of salvation. The approach and the man under the system have been different, however. For example, Abel offered a lamb to God and so did Abraham. The Old Testament priest offered lambs to God. God had said that was the right way. But I hope you didn't bring a lamb to church last Sunday. Because that's not the way God tells us to approach him today. We are under a different economy. So that's just to understand that dispensation. Of the fullness of times. Now what is the fullness of times? I can't go into all the phases of that, but God is moving everything forward to the time when Christ will rule over all things in heaven and earth. This is the fullness, the pleroma, when everything is going to be brought under the rulership of Jesus Christ. The pleroma is like a vast receptacle into which centuries and millenniums have been falling. All that is past, present, and future is moving towards that time when every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the mystery that is revealed to us. I will quote that verse again. It says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather to himself in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. You see here we learn this about Christ, that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Hebrews 2 verse 8. This states very clearly, that we have not yet come to that time. We are under a different dispensation today. We live under a different economy. But God has revealed this to us, that it is coming to pass that something that had not been revealed. Heaven and earth are not in tune today. We are playing our own little tune. We have our rock music going down here. We have whatever form of music. While the rock up there, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is that precious stone that is the foundation upon which the church rests today. And the day will come when heaven and earth will be in tune and all things will be gathered together in Christ Jesus. 
Now we come to the third work of God the Son on behalf of the church. Christ rewards us with an inheritance, actually an eternal inheritance. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Here is another marvelous truth. He gives us an inheritance. He rewards us for something we have not done. It is the overall purpose and plan of God that believers should have a part in Christ's inheritance. They are going to inherit with Christ because they are in Christ. God has predestined this. He has determined it. And this refers to the saved. Remember that God never predestined anybody to be lost. He predestined us to receive an inheritance. If he hadn't predestined it to me, I would never get it. It is something I do not deserve. It is a reward out of his grace and not out of my merit. This is God's will. And that is the only basis on which it is done. It is good and it is right and it is the best. Why? Because God has purposed it. You just can't have it any better than that. Oh, these are the three marvelous things Christ has done for us. He's redeemed us with his blood. He's revealed the mystery of his will. And he rewards us with an inheritance. How wonderful it is. I can't lose it. He paid for the church. And I belong to him because he paid the price. Verse 12 is one of, of those glorious doxologies that we find throughout the epistles. You will notice that Paul stops and sings the doxology after he tells what each person of the Godhead has done. He has just finished telling us about the work of the Son. Then he writes that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. God does not exist to satisfy the whim and the wish of the believer. No, the believer exists for the glory of God. When the believer is in the center of the will of God, he is living a life of fullness and of satisfaction and of joy. Living in God's will adds purpose and meaning to life. We are going to be part of the praise of his glory. We exist today to the praise of his glory, and that is enough. This doxology, my friend, looks forward, of course, to the coming of Christ. The third doxology we shall see concerns the work of the Holy Spirit. We will talk about this in our next study. For today, may the peace of God and his grace be your experience. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.